Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I'd like to uh, thank you for joining us again today for another uh, show as we provide useful information and, in- and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be. Uh, in the U.S., we tend to be somewhat self-focused on our various communities and what they're doing with broadband and trying to derive lessons and so forth on, on how we move forward. But there are indeed other countries out there that are doing good stuff in broadband as well, and I'm a big advocate of um, taking every opportunity to learn what we can from these other um, countries, cities and other countries, to, to gather lessons that they have learned and figure out where some of those lessons might dovetail with uh, what we're doing here in the U.S. The Intelligent Community Forum is an organization, a think tank, if you will, based out of New York. Uh, their, one of their co-founders was our guest on Friday describing how they search out uh, various communities and assess their business practices and basically figure out you know, all the things that they do uh, to understand the, the challenges of the broadband economy and what steps these different cities do to create an economy that's capable of prospering in what we're calling this new uh, broadband economy. And they assess some 400 and, 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 and above numbers of cities to kind of get a handle on who's doing what. And in a, in a contest of sorts, they, they eventually pick the Intelligent Community of the Year, which is the best of the best as far as uh, cities and communities with good broadband and economic development practices. This year, the winner is um, the city of Toronto in Canada. And I am very happy to have uh, one of the leading players in uh, what is a multifaceted economic development effort in Toronto, and that person is uh, John Campbell, who is the president and CEO of Waterfront Toronto, which is a $30 billion or so project geared toward revamping the entire waterfront uh, areas of Toronto. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. Pleased to be here. So let's jump right in and get an idea of what we're talking about here. What is the Waterfront Project, and what is the role that uh, broadband plays in that project? Uh, Craig, the the Waterfront uh, revitalization effort is taking 2,000 acres next to the central business district of what is effectively the economic capital of Canada, not the political capital, but the economic capital, and revitalizing it. What's interesting about that is it's not like other efforts you see in waterfronts around the world where it's all just about real estate development. It's really about revitalization, which is, yes, we're using real estate economics, but we're actually driven by public policy. So how do we stop urban sprawl? How do we promote sustainability? How do we promote transit? How do we provide a mix of housing in the waterfront and not just become an enclave of the uber-rich, which is what most waterfronts do? So from our point of view, it's about creating a quality of life here that allows us to attract the best and brightest intellectual capital and keep them here, and that will allow our city, our province, and our country to be more economically competitive 
you know, over the next century. So it's all about economic competitiveness. And the broadband strategy we put in place is in part to try to really reinforce our employment strategy. Uh, when we started back, uh, at least when I started back in 2001 and uh, in 2004, we attended the ICF Forum in New York, and we saw what Glasgow had done from an employment strategy point of view. They had gone from 17% unemployment when they lost a shipbuilding on the Clyde River down to low single digits by adopting this smart uh, intelligent community um, strategy. So we just said, well, that's great for us because we were uh, you know, quite concerned about losing jobs to the suburbs. And so this was an effort for us to you know, help revitalize the downtown, the waterfront, by bringing jobs down here. Now, I think since that time, the Intelligent Community Forum have broadened their metrics quite a bit. So things like you know, uh, digital and so, uh, social inclusion and innovation, all those kinds of things are important, which are important to us as well. But it's really about putting a new face on Toronto and driving the economic development of the city into the next century. Long okay. answer, but it is, it is a, a, a fairly nuanced and, and complicated <laughs> strategy. Now, I'm going to jump on something here, actually, that you mentioned in your, in your breakdown of where you guys are going. You talked about um, retaining uh, individuals. And mm-hmm. I find it a little interesting because typically um, in the U.S., and I'm sure other countries as well, we talk about the rural communities having to struggle to retain uh, individuals and talent and, and all of that after people get their education and college and so forth. Um, is this an urban issue as well, retaining people? Well, I, I think it's, it's – uh, when we started, it certainly was because we'd seen a, a loss of employment to the outer suburbs. In the 10 years prior to 2004 – we had 11 million square feet of office space built around the sort of exterior ring road uh, of the city and only a half a million square feet built downtown. Now, since 2004, the shift has changed. Toronto's a very urban 24-hour-a-day city, so we're seeing young people come downtown. And so the attracting talent is not so much a urban versus suburban issue anymore. It's much more about Toronto versus the rest of the world. How do we maintain our global competitiveness by making sure we attract the best and brightest people. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So um, with, with that in mind, we may come back to this, uh, this topic and maybe draw some parallels between uh, urban and rural, but um, Toronto itself has had an interesting broadband history. I think even before you got to uh, the organization in 2003, in 2005 is when I started hearing about Toronto and its uh, municipal Wi-Fi effort, and then it kind of evolved, I think, a little bit. What has been the history of Toronto and broadband? Well, I think what you see most, like most, most probably most North American cities, is it's mostly done by the the private sector. So the carriers basically predominant, predominant in that environment. I know the city of Toronto did try. A, a wireless effort for a while. I think that got picked up by one of the carriers. So I think in general speaking, uh, the broadband service in Toronto, apart from the waterfront now, is basically driven by the existing incumbent carriers. So Rogers, TELUS, Bell Canada, uh, you know, provide probably, uh, I, think, uh, I think the minimum is 1.5 megabits per second to about 100% of the residents of the city. So that becomes kind of the base uh, broadband capability in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there, hasn't, there hasn't really been a lot of municipal engagement uh, 
other than what I would call a, a bit of a start when the, the, the local hydro had a, uh, a wireless spin-off. They're using dark fiber and so forth. So it hasn't, uh, really, it's, it's primarily uh, the commercial carriers that are, 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 are carrying that. Okay. So in, in that realm, then, what has been the, uh, the, the city's role? Has it been one of prodding? Has it been one of uh, full-on partnership? As, you know, public-private partnership is a big thing here in the U.S. How, how has the city proceeded since it's not? Well, yeah, I guess, again, building on the, the, on the um, commercials, I don't forget that uh, Toronto really is the heart of our Internet in Canada. So the market mm-hmm. investment here has been very strong. Um, insofar as our relationship with the city, in a lot of things that we're doing, we have the ability to be a bit of a pilot project. So we can trial things here without having to sort of have the city commit to doing everything across a city of 2.5 million, square, you know, million people, uh, 6 million in the broader GTA area. So it allows us to be, as I said, the, sort of the sharp end of the spear and do stuff and prove it in and have it expand. So our broadband network, for example, we're uh, putting into the waterfront uh, will will invariably spread beyond that. Mm-hmm. So, so in essence, um, you're hoping that the successes uh, that you have and the challenges that you overcome will then provide lessons and inspiration for the rest of the, the city to kind of take note and take heart. That's our plan. I mean, my experience has been if you want to change things, do it within your area of responsibility, see it works, and then, as you say, let the successes migrate and the failures stay home. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That makes, that makes good sense. Yeah. How do we actually probably for a background, maybe it would be helpful to talk a little bit about the relationship between the private sector and the, um, the public sector and what limitations the public sector has to, to address. Because in, in, in the U.S., depending on the state that you're in, as in which, you know, which, which are the 50 states, you may or may not have uh, a situation where the city can actually build its own infrastructure. And so there's varying laws and what have you. What's the state of affairs in, uh, in, in Toronto in particular or Canada in general? Well, there are some, I'll call it municipal uh, uh, programs or projects, I would say in general, uh, it's more of a, I'll call it a P3 approach, a public-private partnership. And so you'll see, you know, government setting policy and having it implemented by the private sector. What mm-hmm. we did, I mean, we, we, as in, you know, we basically are breaking the North American model. I mean, um, typically carriers compete on hardware and in Europe and other places around the world, Australia, New Zealand, and so forth, it's, a, it's an open pipe system. Everyone goes on the same pipe. Uh, we have the first open access broadband system in Canada, second in North America after Chattanooga. And uh, that was a change, certainly, and a, and a real challenge to put in place because one of the things that we're trying to do is ensure that as a public sector, we're not doing things, we, rather we only do things that the private sector can't or won't do. And so we're trying to make sure that, we, that we're not using public funds to compete with the private sector who pay the taxes. So our, our business model is a very unique hybrid. We have actually in the waterfront, we have a private sector carrier, but driven by public policy. So we've brought them in through an RFP process, but we're asking our developers who buy land from us 
to contribute a capital uh, contribution towards the capital cost of the network. Uh, and then we're also uh, locking them into having their condo association, when it's formed, sign a 10-year um, service contract with the carrier. So we can say to the carrier, we'll help subsidize your cost of capital and we'll guarantee you a 10-year contract. Uh, and that kind of gives enough comfort that they can go ahead and the business model works for them. So it's, a, it's us using our control of public land um, to basically uh, help support the, uh, the, uh, the private sector carrier and then committing the residential developments that occur there to uh, a revenue, like a, a service contract. Now, that's kind of unique in the sense that in Ontario, uh, condominiums are allowed to break any contract the developers gotten into after 12 months. So that mm -hmm. was put in place to preclude previous bad business practices where developers would give you know, their brother-in-law a property management contract for multi-years. So, but the one exception is telecom because of the capital uh, investment required. So there is a, a provision that we can commit to, uh, to telecom contracts. So currently, the condos are signing up for 100 megabits per second as a base load. It's a one gigabit system residentially, uh, but it's 100 megabits as the sort of base commitment they can get into. Synchronous, not asynchronous. So up and down, same speed. Uh, mm -hmm. and, no data, and no data caps. So there's no tolling, and the carrier has to stay in the top seven of the world as measured by the ICF so that he can't just mine it. He's basically got to up his speeds and up his quality. So from a price performance point of view, we have to stay in the top cluster of the world insofar as what we provide. So that's a kind of unique arrangement, and uh, one, one could argue that we're uh, engaging public money by you know, using our control of land but we also have carved back a very small royalty to offset the capital investment over time that the, the developer has to give up as part of the, uh, the package. Something also that's kind of unusual, Craig, is that what we've done is built into the model a cross-subsidy. So uh, I'm paying the carrier. We, well, we're paying the carrier 100%, let's say, for each unit we have him do. But one of our other mandates is to make sure that we, have, we provide land so that 20% of the units in the waterfront can be affordable rental. Now, that doesn't mean deep subsidy. That just means having a rental market that's at the average of the uh, city rents or a bit below. Mm -hmm. what, we've done, what we've done in this is we basically, I'm collecting 120% from the market developers per unit of what I'm giving the carrier, but I'm asking the carrier to basically wire up every unit. So we've created, in a sense, a cross-subsidy in our business model to make sure that affordable rentals aren't left behind. Because one of the concerns we have as we become more digital, the digital divide grows. I mean, if you think about the, you know, how we're, you know, economically how we're dividing, we want to make sure that effectively no one gets left behind in the new economy. So uh -huh. we're providing uh, capital for those units to be wired up, and then the carriers are actually providing, you know, lower rates as well for Internet to those uh -huh. units. So make sure, again, that everybody's in this new economy. Interesting. So maybe even, I, I don't know, I probably should have talked about this a little bit sooner. What exactly is the structure of Waterfront Toronto? Is this a, um, a, a private or a public sector nonprofit? How, how are you guys structured? Uh, we are, uh, I think the, 
British call us quangles, quasi-autonomous non-government organizations. We're, we're effectively uh, created uh, in 2003 by three governments, the federal government, the provincial government, and the city government. Their mandate was to revitalize the waterfront, which again, driven by public policy. They each granted us um, $500 million in seed capital plus control of land, of which 85% down here is owned by the public. So the business model is take the seed capital, invest in infrastructure, sell some government land, take the profit, reinvest in infrastructure, sell some government land, and so on and so on and so forth. And that basically was to drive, at the time, $1.5 billion plus land was supposed to drive a $17 billion project. Well, in today's dollars, that project's probably $35 billion all in with all the investment, of which six to $8 billion is probably the public sector investment required in you know, streets, roads, parks, sewer, water, flood protection, those kinds of things. So it's a, it's a major multi-decade project, probably go 30, 40 years. Uh, and it's based on kind of a, a, a rolling inventory of using public land to fund it. Now, that probably won't be enough to do the things we need to do, um, but the, the seed capital of 1.5 has now been invested just about all, about 1.3 billion as of last uh, August. Mm-hmm. And the studies that we did show that uh, we've already generated about $620 million of taxes back to governments, and the investment we've made has inspired the first six projects to come along, private sector investment of about $2.6 billion, which has generated about $838 million of taxes. So we're already, in a sense, uh, either ourselves or throughout the deals we've done, we've done with the private sector, have paid back the government the seed capital. And, of course, we're just starting on the projects because there's a lot of infrastructure work required before you can start doing deals on, a, on, on the sort of final developments. And... Uh, you know, real estate has a very long gestation period. So mm-hmm. the, the business model really for government's point of view is if they invest the seed capital, they do get it back in revenues from what it promotes. Interesting. So it's a, it's a rather complex arrangement. And if I'm understanding correctly, it's a city, province, and country investment to make all of this, you know, financially viable and despite all that complexity and all these interlocking parts, you have managed to turn back a, um, a, a positive return, if you will, for taxpayer investment. That's correct. It is, it's not rather complicated. It's very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I, when, when, Craig, when I first started, I tried to count up how many different agencies and departments I had to deal with, and I, I, I gave up at around 32. <laughs> wow. Well, we have, I mean, in a sense, one of the reasons are what, we're late in the game on waterfront revitalization is, you know, we've had studies here for 200 years. The first was done in 1792 by Lord Simcoe, our first lieutenant governor, but nothing much has happened, and primarily because you get caught in bureaucratic gridlock, and that's not to be negative, just that there's so many people involved down here, just very difficult for any one government to do it. So this model, as complicated as it is, has allowed us to kind of, break through some of the gridlock, and with the consensus of the other governments and their agencies, you know, combine around a vision and, and deliver on the vision. Wow. So now what was some of the, um, I don't know, the major challenges? I mean, because in the U.S., when we start a project, like you, you referenced Chattanooga, when we start a project here, 
um, there is often endless challenges from the the incumbent carriers. They will try to beat it in in the state legislature. They will try to beat it through lawsuits. Then they'll just try to outmarket the company and you know have all kinds of price promotions and so forth. Have you dodged that level of um, incumbent pushback, or do you still have to deal with some of that as well? I, it was a major concern for us because we were changing the model here, but we did invite all the major carriers to participate if they wanted to. So they had a, they had a chance to be the carrier if they wanted to, but I suspect, and I don't know for sure, but I suspect most passed on the opportunity because it was just it was too different. Uh, so <laughs> we're we're probably we're probably right now not large enough to to worry them, um, uh, but I, th- I think that. Um, so far, we've, we've certainly dodged that issue. Um, and I also think that, uh, again, this is my subjective assessment. I think a lot of carriers are shifting over to a different business. You know, you wonder if the landline business is going to be, you know, the backbone of their business in the future. A lot of the ones here have shifted over to content provision. You know, they're investing in sports teams and in, in TV companies, uh, media companies. And so there is, I would say, a... Uh, a bit of a groundswell shift in in their focus onto uh, you know away from landlines into uh, into content. Hmm. So you have been uh, in some respects lucky because you haven't, uh, or because you came in in such a a, a complex fashion. Um, one of the other well, the, other, the other thing we did the other thing we did, Craig, is we we did make sure that people like uh, our regulator, for example. Uh, we have the CRTC, which is like your FCC in the States. We made sure they were aware of what we're doing. So we talked to, first of all, the uh, bureaucratic entities, Industry Canada, which manages that aspect. We talked to them about it and also talked to, I made a presentation to the CRTC. So they were aware of what we were doing. And the CRTC right now, I think, is very much focused on providing much more consumer choice. So they were certainly very supportive of, of what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you seem to have managed to, um, to to do this well. I don't know if you've been following the uh, the Australian uh, nationwide network. Though, granted, you guys are not nationwide, but it's a it's a, a community. I'm sorry, it's a community project that I think a lot of folks here in the U.S. are familiar with. Besides, obviously, our own political issues. Um, what do you what do you are are you doing anything to prevent or to minimize the possibility of future pushback? I mean, it sounds like you took a lot of the right steps. You're not competing directly with uh, private sector. Um, you, you know, you you've conformed to a number of things in order to ensure that. Uh, do you think that that'll pretty much hold up and that you won't face any kind of long range, uh, like assume that you do very well, assume that the city of Toronto says, well, you know what these folks have done in the waterfront, we want to do all over the city, you know, or other cities might want to try to replicate what you guys are doing, in which case then you're no longer, you know, this odd duck out, you're kind of the, the, I don't know, the flagship for a new way of doing business. Yeah, I I don't know if anyone could quite easily replicate our model because we are using the control of land to basically have our developers pay a per per door capital contribution. So I'm not sure you could just do that somewhere else as quickly because most development's on private sector land. 
we're unique in the sense we have all this publicly owned land because it's all it's all Lakeville over the last hundred years. So a lot of it is publicly owned. So mm-hmm. it's sort of a we have a unique uh, opportunity to leverage the public ownership of land into this kind of network. So I'm not sure you could sort of translate to, to the rest of the city that easily, but I I, I do think that um, uh, I, I'm, I'm much more comfortable about the commercial carriers being uh, okay with our model in the sense that we have seen uh, an investment by one of the major carriers uh, in our local carrier. Mm-hmm. I, I can't, I'm not sure I can disclose exactly, but I think we're seeing a lot of uh, buy-in to the model uh, and uh, or at least, if nothing else, acquiesce, acquiescence to the model. <clears throat> okay. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the uh, the technology that drives the network. What, what have you got going there? I assume that there's fiber involved. I saw an yeah. article um, about a couple of wireless initiatives, though I was, I'm not sure if I cut them as being connected. I mean, this was in, in, in 2013, so it might have been, uh, you know, a, a sideline thing or, or, or what. But, but, but what do you have as far as... Um, well, no, we have a, we have a one gigabit network with fiber to the home, and we've got say so say the base the base offering is 100 megabits per second synchronous with no data caps. Mm-hmm. Uh, commercially, it's up to 10 gigs, um, and we have we will be putting in part in place. Uh, sorry, we'll be putting in place um, ubiquitous Wi-Fi in the same neighborhood, so that people who are subscribers to the carrier, in a sense, are sort of in communication throughout the neighborhood as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's in place. Um, we're also now putting in sort of the um, uh, the next level. So we are putting in a community portal, and, and it's an IBM uh, portal, so it's kind of bulletproof, being put in by a company called Element Blue out of Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have, and I, as a layman, I use the analogy. So we have the network, we've got the PC, now we've got the operating system, and then and now we're looking at what applications do we put on top of that to really build our intelligent community. So how do we use big data from the government? How do we provide services, whether it's e-health or other things, through this network? So one of the advantages uh, that we're trying to, in a sense, to drive our employment strategy is how can we use this fully connected, high-speed, no-tolling system to attract companies to come down here to provide jobs because what we're going to offer them, in a sense, is a living laboratory. So we have mm-hmm. now to the marketplace an innovation center that we want to build uh, in, in the waterfront, and we want to attract companies down here who want to collaborate and, so, and who can use the pipe. So we have Chorus Entertainment, who's already in place as an anchor tenant. Uh, we'll have the George Brown, probably their design, their gaming school come down. We're talking to, at the other end of the corridor, we've got Pinewood Studios, so how can we use that broadband and the office space and the connectivity to drive companies like post-production companies, animation companies, and those kinds of companies to come down here and you know, you know, use this uh, innovation district? Toronto has, I think, the third or fourth largest information and communications technology cluster in North America. But what we're focusing on is a subset of that, what I would call digital visualization. How do we really target those people to come down and collaborate and help create, you know, wealth and, uh, and competitiveness. Mm-hmm. So is, the, is Toronto the center of your um, 
uh, in, inter, uh, I guess, entertainment, film industries. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So okay. It's sort of called Hollywood North. Ah, we, have, gotcha. we, 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 we actually have the largest sound studio in North America now just built. And so there have been recent restructuring that. So Pinewood Studios have come in with local people as well. So they're operating it. And uh, it's been absolutely um, booming year for the last couple of years for film. In fact, it was interesting, once we had built the studio, which is really needed to attract the blockbuster films, we had to build more studios because they, the business kind of squeezed out the local TV production. So we had to build more studios to accommodate that. So the film industry is a very, very uh, strong employment generator uh, in the city. That's interesting because I think in, uh, in um, Santa Monica, California, their network has uh, come into play. I mean, it started initially as a way to replace a lot of the city's infra- communication infrastructure, but then they used the, in essence, ac- excess fiber to fuel a drive to bring um, the whole production, post-production technology to town and become a center in that. And so in essence, they became an adjunct to Hollywood, if you will, because people mm. could, um, you know, set up their various production studios and post-production and so forth, use the gigabit network in, in Santa Monica to be able to do instant or real-time, you know, collaboration and editing and all the rest of that. I'm wondering if um, <clears throat> you may have, I don't know, surrounding suburbs or communities around Toronto suddenly see a, a business case for uh, building a network as a way to support Hollywood North. Well, it's interesting because that was one of our sort of our, our thinkings as we, as we talked about this, because certainly what was pointed out to us was, you know, quite often directors would be doing cuts, having to send the film down to, to uh, Hollywood for, for post-production. Um, so certainly that was part of the thinking in our sort of network thinking was this would allow uh, you know stuff to be done locally as opposed mm-hmm. to uh, you know on the fly so to speak at night. Uh, so it would really be advantageous for our, for our film uh, industry to have that capability locally. So that was part of our mm-hmm. thinking in building network was to make sure that provision was available. Uh, a lot of post production stuff is downtown, uh, and they can certainly be. Um, be uh, be hooked up that way. Mm-hmm. That should prove to be uh, very interesting as a uh, you know as all these offshoot um, businesses take hold. Is there a um, I don't know a um, oh I'm look I'm looking for a word uh, an atmosphere that is conducive to uh, home based businesses. Because I've noticed that one of the, you know, targets of the uh, network is to provide, you know, several tens of thousands of residences with 100 megabit uh, connections. Um, one of those, again, one of the things we found out here in, in the U.S. is that when you bring high speed to the homes, uh, particularly in smaller towns, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a big uptake of... Um, uh, home-based businesses. And I don't know if we have tracked the home-based business trend in the larger cities, but from your perspective, will home-based businesses become, I don't know, almost a, an economic development layer of its own in uh, in Toronto? 
Well, I don't know if it's home-based business, but certainly working from home was one of the, the again one of our drivers insofar as looking at the network. Because if in fact we are able to successfully attract the tenant base that we're targeting, then part of the uh, attractiveness would be the ability for their employees who live in the in proximity on the waterfront to basically work from home and have the same kinds of speeds that they would have in the office. So certainly that was part of our thinking that as more and more companies, in a sense, uh, move their, head, their, their real estate kind of back into the employee's home, mm-hmm. how can we facilitate that? So we weren't thinking so much as home-based businesses, but rather employees who would be working for companies in the waterfront who could work from home. Like we're seeing certainly a trend in office space where office users are building much more team space in their office and much less individual space. So mm-hmm. that implies naturally you're going to have people working from home more often and going in for team meetings and collaboration and so forth. So we thought that having the, the network synchronous would be a real uh, selling point for the tenants we try to attract in here because you know, we're, we are providing a lot of, uh, of housing down here. Uh, we're talking the overall waterfront is to provide 40,000 residential units. So that's 115,000, 120,000 people. So uh, having a synchronous system would allow for lots of opportunities for tenants to have space down here and have you know, quite a selection of housing opportunities for their employees to, again, be able to work from home as effectively as they can from the office, at least from a technological viewpoint. Mm-hmm. So it seems, you know, I'm, I'm, as, I, as I'm listening to you, that... Um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on broadband as an economic development tool for rural communities, but a lot of what you're describing are benefits that are similar to the benefits that are seen in, in rural communities. And I bring this up to sort of point out that uh, maybe, at least here in the U.S., we are a little one-dimensional in sort of how we sell and promote broadband, I mean, granted, it is important and vitally needed in rural communities, uh, especially where they have nothing at the current time, but there, there doesn't seem to be enough discussion about the fact that this technology can really improve uh, metropolitan areas where we just assume they have it all or they have all the broadband they need to do everything they could ever want. Well, I think, and I think that's interesting. It's a common assumption. On that latter point, I think Part of the challenge with that is we have it, but it's slow and we're paying too much money for it. So when you look right. at price performance of North America, and I include Canada and the U.S. in sort of one bundle here, we're paying uh-huh. far too much for far too little. And so if you compare us to Tokyo or Singapore or Seoul, South Korea or other places, we're way behind. We're laggards. And so what does that do to our innovation and our, our competitiveness? And you look at, I know last year, Canada slipped to... Uh, I think 34th position in innovation behind Romania. Well, mm-hmm. you know, that's not exactly a, a glowing metric for us to brag about when Canada used to be in the forefront of telecommunications technology. So we, I think, so yes, it's there commercially, but we need to up our game if we want to really compete globally. So I think that's a, a, you know, an issue urbanly, or, or speaking urbanistically. On the rural issue, I, mean, I, I agree, I think it's interesting, rural communities are focused on this because I think they have some challenges. I mean, we, our challenge in Toronto is we're suffering from problems of growth. 
we bring in about 100 to 115,000 immigrants a year to the greater Toronto area, and we will for the next 20 or 30 years. So mm-hmm. we're growing one of the fastest-growing cities in the world. So our challenges are congestion and traffic and growth and how do we handle you know, the housing required for that many people joining uh, the community. But we do have a – and I guess Canada is one of the most – urbanly dense, urbanly, urbanly concentrated countries in the world. I mean, unlike the U.S. where people are kind of spread around in smaller cities and towns, I mean, we have five major cities and some small towns and so forth, but most of our people live in large urban centers, probably between 70 and 80 percent, I would, I would guess. Uh, mm-hmm. So r- rural depopulation is a challenge that our smaller towns are having, uh, and broadband probably is the answer to keep, a lot of, you know, keep people at home on the farm, so to speak, and give them employment opportunities where they want to live as opposed to having to having to them having to move to the city to get proper job opportunities right and that's a a very similar dynamic and it's interesting to note that um, a lot of this understanding a lot of this uh, attention to these issues is what has drawn the attention of the intelligent community forum ICF right because they're looking for you know, communities that are using technology and using uh, telecommunications to revitalize their economies. And, and, it, yes. and revitalization of economies is, an, is a large metropolitan issue as much as it is a rural issue, is a net of this. I agree. I agree. And I, and I think we're also sort of seeing, I mean, the, the, the whole intelligent community forum strategy, I mean, it really is looking to how, how we're going to manage in the future. One of the things that we've been focused on as a corporation is a sustainability agenda. And clearly what we see as the next wave of sustainability is the use of the ICT technology to drive sustainability. In other words, how do you use existing resources better and more efficiently and so forth? It's not about you know, uh, finding more resources. It's much more about uh, using ICT to really uh, maximize the output of our existing resources. And that's mm-hmm. a whether it's public transport or or whatever, it's really using existing capabilities much smarter. So, how has the uh, the community at large responded to uh, to this to to this project? I, I think quite well. I mean, we have the network is up and running. Uh, we have uh, clients hooked up and so forth, so that's working well. Um, I you know I would say that. We have not yet got to the point where they see a lot of the whiz-bang applications that we really sort of uh, knocked their socks off yet. We've focused so far in getting the, the plumbing in and then the operating system in, the portal and so forth. So I think now we're sort of at the cusp of being able to introduce a lot of new applications that, that uh, uh, you know, can really catch their attention. I mean, it's, it's the sizzle and the steak argument. I think the steak is there now. Now we've got to produce the sizzle. Interesting. We, um, <clears throat> I am often a critic of too much of the sizzle and not enough of the steak, especially when people are con- confused about the whole technology discussion in the first place. So I guess you, you have done a pretty good job then by switching the dynamic a little bit by you know, producing notable and noteworthy um, applications and solutions and all of that you know, get your business model straight, get your relationships straight and all of that, then worry about bringing it to the attention of the, the average citizen on the street. 
That's true, and I, I think partly because we recognized that this was not going to be an easy uh, easy chore. Uh, you know, that we had a had to create a very uh, interesting hybrid business model. We went through. Uh, well, we didn't go through a recession up here to the same extent as the U.S. from the housing point of view. That kept us kind of really going strong, but we did have a recession. And so partway through our process, uh, we were looking at carriers who then in 08 basically had their funding sort of shrink because uh, the market uh, uh, pulled back. So it's been a 10-year journey to get the stake there, and I think we were leery <laughs> about adding too much sizzle before we really made sure the stake was in the pan and on the plate. Mm-hmm. No, hey, I, I'm with you 100% on this one. By the way, is the um, <clears throat> it is often said, uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, the public sector involvement, that the big advantage is that by not having to be focused on the quarterly earnings that uh, is the case in the private sector, the public sector is able to do more because you can take the seven, eight-year view. You can take all of that time to put, as you say, the stake in place um, without having to worry about stockholders. Um, is, is that a fair and strong endorsement of, uh, you know, the public sector involvement? No, I, I would I, – yes and no, and I'll tell you why. I think uh, yes, because we don't have quarterly returns to worry about, but we also have – political agendas to worry about. So, for example, if you have a major change in government, does, you know, does the public sector agency doing that then suddenly have to take a 90 or 180 degree turn because there's been a swing you know, in, in government? Now, we're unique somewhat in that we have three governments that are stakeholders, so the political swings of any one government don't sort of uh, uh, affect us as directly because we, they have, they have two other part- everyone has two other partners to work with. Uh, the other government. So we've been able to maintain our vision as a public agency, but I, I can't say that's true for every public agency because if, in fact, you're a public agency of one level of government, then that does create a problem when you have political changes. Right. And, uh, and we have seen, in fact, I've personally been involved in projects that will, will start under one administration, whether the administration is very pro or very negative, and then you have the election come up and you worry about, well, who's going to get elected to council? You know, will there be a new mayor? What about the fact that this guy running for mayor is not a big broadband supporter? You know, yeah. the, the political dynamics for the city-only um, project is immense. And we, we tend to have a lot of cities, obviously, that are, that are running projects and successfully. I mean, there's Chattanooga, there's Lafayette, and so forth. But at the same time, uh, and particularly when you're in the early stages, that local politics can be a real humdinger, as we say here in some places. It it, it certainly is a humdinger. And and I think what happens is, I mean, these things don't happen overnight. And Mm -hmm. so could you, in effect, do this within a three- or four-year term of government? And my answer would be highly unlikely. It just, mm-hmm. it, you know, it takes too much planning, uh, too much work to do to sort of put this in place within one term. So uh, my suspicion is, from a municipal point of view, you're going to bridge at least two terms of, of office before you sort of get some, you know, you're being in the second term before you got things up and running. Mm-hmm. But that would be my suspicion. I mean, I can't speak as an expert on municipal politics in the U.S., but 
just uh, knowing what's involved in putting these things in place um, takes a while. Right. And, and I think that that's a, um, you know, it's almost, it's part of the expectation management process where, you know, when you, when you start one of these projects, it is important to give the folks, you know, the general population hope that the project's going to be there and it's going to bring all these benefits, but you have to temper the amount of hope that you, you give out so that people don't expect it all tomorrow or they don't expect everybody to get it all at one time because it's just logistically and financially impossible to light an entire city all on the same day. I mean, even oh, yeah. It, that, that's a, you know, managing expectations is a, uh, it's a, a very important issue. When you have that in general terms, not just on our broadband, but everything else we're doing, uh, this is a, you know, 20, 30, 40-year project. And, um, and we've had <laughs> in Toronto 200 years of studies with not much action. So we've had a very uh, delicate, cha- opportunity, delicate job rather, of, of, of uh, convincing people it's going to happen for sure this time. But, again, as you say, tempering it, because um, it takes a long time, you know, real estate or broadband, there's long gestation periods. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they can't mm-hmm. expect to see something happen overnight. It's just it's too much capital, too much work. Too much engagement. Uh, it just it does take some some time to do it. Mm-hmm. So, but it is fair to say that um, as you do that, it is it is wise to uh, significantly promote your accomplishments as you hit those certain milestones, right? That you um, allow people to see the success, the forward momentum. So again, it, it 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 tempers, but it also provides you know that that spark that says, "Yep, we're still moving. We're still moving forward." Yeah, and, and from from our perspective, as looking at this sort of large scale project, what we've had to do is do some quick quick wins to convince the public it's actually going to happen this time around. Right. Uh, so we've had some minor projects up front, saying, "What can we do quickly to prove this time it's we're going, we're doing it?" And that, of course, what gets the public on side which then helps get the press on side, which then helps get leadership on side. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, you have to manage that process uh, very carefully. And you do, wanna, yes, you do want to, um, in a sense, promote the wins and make sure that people see that, it, it's, you know, they're brought along and it's actually happening this time around. It's harder mm-hmm. with the broadband because until you, you know, something people don't see. From our perspective, people see the parks, they see the streets and the, pro- and the building projects, but... The broadband's a nuance that we have to work harder to get them to understand what it's all about. If you look at, you know, at the ICF, uh, you know, the Intelligence Community Forum, what they've done, we're trying to make sure that we're you know, pushing that agenda as part of the exercise uh, so that people realize that, oh, yeah, they don't see the broadband, but it's there, and it's going to do wonderful things for us as a society. Uh, in fact, I mean, I've I got to give the ICF credit over the last 20 years. What they've done is just you know, quite remarkable. It's really, uh, they've acted as a, a catalyst for this, uh, you know, over the last couple of decades. So I, my hat's off to them. Interesting indeed. So it sounds like in the all in all that, that things uh, have been planned well, they've been managed well. Um, have you run into any unexpected uh, bumps along the way, and how have you re- re- um, responded to those? Well, yeah, we... we I say working on it since '04, when we sort of first attended the ICF forum in Glasgow, when it was kind of, from a waterfront point of view, pr- prompted our interest. But it's been a long, a long path because uh, 
it's taken a while to make sure that our board of directors was on side, the city was on side. Um, you know, we had a we had a, a major stumble in 08 when we had uh, carriers lined up to do this competing, and uh, in some cases they were owned by venture capital funds in New York. And in 08, uh, you know, the world went to hell in a handbasket. So uh, we weren't able to use those carriers. So we had to sort of regroup and come back again and uh, go out again later on, I think in 2009 or 10, again, and, and select a different carrier. So, you know, it's, it certainly had its, uh, its challenges uh, over time. Mm-hmm. Now, did you plan for, um, you know, emergency, well, not an emergency, but, but some of these challenges to happen? Uh, for example, in uh, I don't know a, a year or so ago on on the show, we had a couple of people that talked about um, you you have to plan for both um, uh, you know negatives that will happen, but at the same time you also have to manage against uh, too much success because that can create uh, you know hyper demand and it can create frustration and so forth, and they're 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 uh, advice was, you know, you've got to plan for both ends of the spectrum, you know, really good stuff happening, and you've got to try to anticipate and plan for, uh, you know, the bad stuff that will happen. Uh, did you guys do a certain amount of, I don't know, crisis planning or damage control planning before you got this thing in the full swing? Well, yeah, I think I mean, we're driven mostly by the residential real estate market. So as we, in a sense, prepare the waterfront, for growth for the network and everything else, we're looking at what happens in the real estate marketplace. So it's been a very hectic marketplace in Toronto. So it's sort of a bit of gangbusters. I say we're, we're bringing in 115, 120,000 people a year. We're selling 20 to 23,000 condominiums a year. We have half the tower cranes of North America here currently working on high-rise projects in, North, in, in Toronto. So it's been a real sort of a heavy marketplace when it comes to growth. And that basically helps feed the, uh, uh, the, the network carrier. But we do recognize that given our project is anywhere from 20 to 40-plus years, we're probably going to go through a couple of business cycles. Mm-hmm. So from our point of view is we recognize that our work's going to slow down, and so we're not going to be selling land to developers and expanding the network. We're going to be, in a sense, uh, focused on parks and public sector stuff during those down times when the marketplace is a bit soft. And I think because we have, in a sense, I'll call it a, uh, uh, a defined contract with condominiums, the carrier's given that stability of income. So the ones that are there, he basically gets the input, he has the capital subsidy through us, and he has the, the guaranteed income. So I think he's on a fairly, uh, and he can, in a sense, uh, roll the network out as fast or as slow as he needs to. So it's not a situation where he's got to put it all in and then suddenly he's got no customers. And so he's expanding his capital as we kind of march from center town out to the east uh, with real estate. Mm-hmm. So he, he's yeah. in a sense protected no, no, in, his, in his capital expenditures. Mm-hmm. So now um, as, as these things kind of come together for you, are you getting lots of calls from other communities that are wanting to know, you know, what you guys are doing and how you're doing it, even though, as you say, it may be difficult to replicate a lot of what you're doing, but is there still an interest, 
you know, are you getting the call to saying, you know, how how can yeah. we do something like this? Well, we have up up until now historically we have a lot of those calls, but they're from cities who want to revitalize their waterfronts. And I mm-hmm. think, given I think I think from for last week going forward, I think we're going to start to see a lot of calls on on how our broadband's working because I think until now we haven't been trumpeting it, but I think that now that we've won sort of the top uh, intelligent community of the year. Uh, you know, with the ICF globally, you'll see a marketing push by us to really advocate that and make sure that people, you know, uh, know what it's about. And I think we'll probably, I mean, I expect to see a, a lot of calls in the future as to, you know, how did you make this work? Mm-hmm. So, so publicity is good. Do you, because of the, I have to ask this question. So because <laughs> here it of, comes, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's like media planning people that work up and down the line with your group. That, okay, when you get this question, this is what your answer is. But, but, but Craig, I'm surprised it wasn't question number one. <laughs> I was going to try to cut you some slack. You know, I figured, well, oh, that's okay. So well, that's bad. very kind. <laughs> but but how, how do you deal with the fact that, um, you know, it's hard to say that you're now the intelligent city community of the world and you seem to have a particular public official who is just the poster child for everything that's wrong with politicians. Well, first of all, our award isn't the most intelligent electorate of the world. <laughs> <laughs> and good for you. <laughs> and, and, and secondly, I think you have to understand our structure as well. I, th- I think the fact that we're able to move on regardless of those issues, I think, is a sort of testament to our democracy. We do not have a strong mayor system. Basically, the mayor is one vote out of 44. So actually, council is working extremely well uh, and doing and, and business is going on uh, as expected. Uh, they've appointed a deputy mayor, uh, and council really is making all the right decisions as they should for you know our city's uh, challenges. So uh, it's not a system like you have in the U.S. It's a it's much more that council is supreme, uh, mm-hmm. and we're and we're also seeing, you know, as shown by the sort of I, uh, the intelligence community forum uh, assessment, you're seeing leadership in every sector of our economy. So it's really academic, industry, not for profits. I think we have a very collaborative approach here on looking at city issues. So council's supreme, and they're working, you know, on their side, uh, fine, and. We also have this collaborative effort with institutions and academia and not-for-profits also and business, you know, working on collaborating, collaborating on, on city issues. So in spite of, of the uh, notoriety our city's got, the, the, the sort of issues of one individual, um, I think the city is uh, marching along just fine. Thank you very much. No, and that, that, that's a good thing. I mean, I think it also, you know, speaks to – um, and importance that should be placed on cultivating a, um, you know, across-the-board political support, you know, not just with any one elected official, but from many. Uh, in fact, Longmont, which Longmont, Colorado, uh, is a city that had to wage political battle with Comcast to, to get their referendum passed to be allowed to run their own network. And Comcast, as you can imagine, put $350,000 into what is a small-town election. Uh, Comcast won the first round, and the city won the second round, and then a subsequent third round of voting. 
and and one of the points was one of one of their you know point people's uh, position was that you have to build political support across parties and across levels even within a city, so that you got you have everyone that's political preaching the same gospel and you minimize the vulnerability to whatever fate might befall you know your <laughs> your lead politicians. Yeah, Which in, in Toronto's that's... case sounds like a very wise move that has has played out very well. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, and again, in spite of the challenges of the one individual who's now off seeking, you know, medical help, and, and you know, my best wishes to him, and quite honestly, I, I don't want to, 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 uh, to, to knock him because he's now seeking help for his, his personal challenges, and I wish him well. But in spite of those past issues, I mean, council is working very, very well, and uh, we're getting the right decisions made. We're getting thoughtful output, and we've got great collaboration with the business community, and the not-for-profits, and uh, and the private sector. So it really is, it's it's working pretty well. So, is there any like we have about just a couple of minutes left? Um, advice to your I don't know your your colleagues in Canada. You know, should they move this ball forward? Should they try something as complex? Now, I realize that every city has its, you know, different issues and so forth. But, but in general, do you recommend that cities move forward and take a more aggressive uh, hold of the process, which clearly you folks have done? I think so. In fact, we're, we're sort of members of iCanada, which is, is a, which basically an association of cities that are trying to move this agenda forward. Because I don't think the status quo is, is, is it's not adequate. We, we cannot, it's like, you know, the only thing that's, that's, uh, that's permanent in the world is change. And if you're not moving ahead, if you're standing still, you're actually moving backwards. And so I think our cities have got to realize that if we want to compete and maintain our quality of life, we've got to be pushing this agenda. We've got to be building smart and intelligent communities. Uh, there, there, I don't think there's an option here, and some are going to get on sooner than later, but, but clearly I think this is an important element in maintaining a quality of life. And I also sense that um, you would give this advice doubly to the metropolitan areas because, like I said, it is assumed that your larger cities don't have the kinds of issues that demand what you folks in Toronto are doing. And that's a misconception that needs to be addressed. Yeah. It's, it's not just rural. It's, it's all our cities need to think about how we do this to preserve our quality of life. I mean, we need to realize we're in a global economy, and we've got to make sure that, that, uh, that our cities and towns are, are uh, up to snuff in basically providing the tools to allow us to, uh, to compete. We should probably have you come on down here to uh, to the U.S. and and preach some of that gospel to some of our <laughs> bigger cities here, because you know our rural focus is good, but we need more of that urban focus as well. So, um, mm-hmm. thank you very much for your time. It's been very uh, enlightening. Um, you know, I've learned a lot about uh, you know what you guys are up to, as has our audience, for which I'm sure everybody is grateful. You know, keep up the good work, keep moving that ball forward, and uh, we look forward to, to hearing about where you, where you folks are in another year. Great. My pleasure to be on the show. Thanks very much. All right. Take care. Okay. And to our audience, Bye-bye. thank you for once again listening in, and uh, we will be back later this week. So stay tuned, and we'll have more great broadband news and developments. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you again soon.